Good morning. Good Palm Sunday morning. It was my first full week at summer camp at a camp called Camp Kobiak, standing for Come, Believe, Accept, Kobiak. This was a camp about two hours away from our church where I grew up in, and I loved it there. We would go to camps there, we would spend time there helping out, and this was the first time I would be away for a full week there. I was, it was after my grade five year, it was summertime, and it was Olympic week. So I couldn't wait to show off my athletic prowess. Well, I remember the first chapel, the opening ceremonies, and the camp director came in the back door, ran down the aisle, and jumped up on stage, and as he was about to land on stage, his foot caught on the edge, and he fell flat on his face. The torch went flying, and it was awesome. (laughs) They couldn't have planned it better for grade five and six. It was going to be a great week. And uh, it... I was there with my friends. Uh, My best friend and I were in a cabin together. And it was Olympic week, as I said, and so each cabin represented a country, and we would compete in different events. And so it was going to be great, and it was great, except that my friend denied me. At least that's how it felt to me. Uh, We would sign up, or we'd raise our hands for the different events. For that, that our cabin would compete in, and so then that person that was selected would go and compete on behalf of the cabin. Well, there was two events that I was going to be amazing at, I knew, and I thought everybody else would know, right? <laughs> Grade five. And so I, uh, I couldn't wait for those events to be announced and the cabin leader to take volunteers, and everybody would say, yeah, Jeff's the, Jeff's the guy. Well, he announced a 50-yard dash, and I raised my hand, and so did five other guys everybody in the cabin and he selected my best friend and I was sure my best friend knew that was my event but he didn't say anything he denied me the opportunity well I didn't want that to to mess up the whole week so I thought okay the next event and there's other things going on but the next event came and everybody raised their hand again And my best friend was selected again. And I was sure this time that he knew that was the other event that I really, really wanted. I don't even remember what the event was. But again, he said nothing. So he denied me again. It it was a great week. I competed in other events and had a good time. But I was really upset that my best friend would deny me what I was sure he knew that I wanted, this hopeful moment of glory that I wanted. But what happened between me and my best friend is nothing compared with the denial we're going to look at this morning in our passage. See, Peter, the apostle Peter, was one of Jesus' closest followers and friends. Peter was the one Jesus named Rock, and he said, on this rock I will build my church and the the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He's the one who boldly stated, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. When the apostles were in the boat one night out in the Sea of Galilee and Jesus had stayed behind and then he came walking out on the water and they thought it was a ghost and then when he found out it was Jesus, Peter said, Lord, let me come out to you on the water. 
And Jesus said, come, and he walked on water while his eyes were set on Jesus. Peter was one of the three, one of only three who saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain. Jesus' face, it says, shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. He was one of those three that saw this. Jesus, or Peter, was Jesus' right-hand man. He loved Jesus, and Jesus had great plans for him. And Peter was sure that he would defend Jesus to the end, that he would fight for him and stand with him. Yet when Jesus told him that he would deny him three times, uh, or when, when Peter told Jesus that, Jesus told him, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And in John 18, we see how this plays out, how the prediction that Jesus made there plays out. Now, I know it's Palm Sunday. That's the day that Jesus, he, wel- he was welcomed as the king into Jerusalem. But he, as we know, he wasn't the, the kind of king that people were expecting. He went to the temple and he drove people out and he turned over tables and he quoted Jeremiah 7.11. says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. It was a busy week for Jesus. And he was ever on purpose, never in a hurry, but he had his eyes set on what he came to do because Friday was coming. The intended time for his crucifixion and everything he did was leading to that moment. We're gonna skip ahead from Palm Sunday to what happens to Peter on Thursday night because next week we wanna take a look at how Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, approaches Peter after his death and resurrection. So in John 18, we'll begin at verse 12, but we'll set the scene a little bit. So in Matthew 26 and Luke 22, we learn that that Jesus and his disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus has told the disciples, pray, stay awake and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. But they keep falling asleep, and Jesus, he goes off by himself, and he's sweating drops of blood. He's in such anguish about what he knows is to come and he knows how hard it's gonna be and he prays to his father, if there's any other way, please, nevertheless, not my will but your will. He submits to the father. And the disciples, they can't stay awake and, and when Jesus returns, he, he, he wakes them up and he says, my betrayer is coming. Meanwhile, in John 18, 3, it says Judas was leading a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And Jesus asked them, who do you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. John 18, 6 says that they drew back to the ground, they drew back and fell to the ground with three words. Such power came out of Jesus that the Roman uh, soldiers couldn't even stand. They fell to the ground. Think about that for a minute. This little detail exposes so much about what's going on. One thing that exposes that Jesus uses the same language that God used for Moses when God said you're going to go and ask 
Pharaoh to set my people free. And Moses says, I can't do it. And he says, who, who, should, who should I say sent me? And God said, I am has sent me to you. Tell them that I am has sent me to you. Jesus uses those same words, I am, and power goes out. He's fully God. At any point, he has the power to overcome and control any of the events that follow. They fall before him. They have no power over him. I don't know how they recover from that. Do they just get up and dust themselves off and think, I must have tripped? Do they just put it out of their mind? I don't know how they recover. But the story carries on, and Peter at this point, he's ready to stand with Jesus to defend him, to fight for him. He takes out his sword and he cuts off someone's ear, and Jesus heals it. And Jesus commands Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Again, Jesus is on purpose for his, for his intended goal. And that sets the stage for our passage that begins in verse 12 of John 18. So that, now we'll read it. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for all the people. Now, I want to notice a couple things before we carry on. First, Jesus is arrested and bound. Now, think about how silly that is. He's just said, I am he, and they've fallen to the ground. Now they think they're going to bind him and hold him and have control over him? It's kind of weird, isn't it? And yet, I think they're doing more than that. They're portraying an image of guilt. There's nothing that says guilt more than somebody bound in chains or ropes or, or handcuffs and officials next to them marching them away. The image is one of guilt. They want to portray him as guilty. Another thing to note is that Annas, it says that Annas was the uh, high priest at, in the next little bit. Annas was the high priest from AD 6 to AD 15, but then he was deposed by Rome. And under biblical law, uh, a high priest is, is appointed for life. So the Jewish people, they still, many of them thought of him as the high priest, and he still had a huge amount of influence. After him, about five of his sons, or, or five of his sons, were high priests at some point or another, and Caiaphas' son-in-law was the high priest at this point. And then another thing to note is that Caiaphas, in verse 14, says, uh, it says that he had advised the leaders that it was good if one person died for all the people. Uh, this, actually, he said this in John 11, 49 to 50. However, when he said it, he wasn't thinking about dying the way Jesus was going to die for the sins of the people. He, he was thinking that uh, if, they, if Jesus could be killed, then they could save their power and influence over the people. Again and again, we see that God is in complete control, that he's working out his perfect plan, even as humans plot and scheme. So Jesus, he's bound in ropes or chains. He's being brought to Annas, the former high priest, who some think is the high priest, who still has significant influence. And then the story shifts over to Peter in verse 15. So let's read what happens next. 
Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because the disciple was known to the high priest, he went, into the, in, went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. So John tells us that Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that Peter was following at a distance. So you get this idea that, that, G, that Peter wants to see what's going on, but he's nervous, he's a little jumpy, so uh, uh, he's just kind of following along. Most commentators agree that the other disciple is actually the author John. John refers to other people by name, but to himself, he, he refers to himself as the beloved disciple, and here is the other disciple. Somehow John was known to the high priest and he goes right in. Peter has to wait outside, so John comes back. He talks to the servant girl and says it's okay. He comes back in. And then Peter's confronted with a situation he's not prepared for. Moments before, he was ready to stand with Jesus, to defend him, to fight for him. But it's the little things. It's the little things that we're not prepared for. One of the largest freshwater turtles is the alligator snapping turtle. And it's found primarily in the southeastern United States, and they can be massive, up to 250 pounds. They're carnivorous, they mostly feed on fish, but they can feed on other things. Uh, they've been actually known to eat small alligators. So this alligator snapping turtle, it, it has a unique way of, of luring in its prey. It will lay on the bottom of the lake or the ocean with its mouth wide open. And it has a, an appendage at the back of its, its tongue that it looks like a worm and it's pink and it'll wiggle that and an unsuspecting fish will come along, see that worm, be lured in and then snap the, the fish's food. <laughs> so, sushi. <laughs> the, the fish is prepared to dart away at any, at any sight of danger. It's prepared for all that, but what it's not prepared for is this deceptive little thing. Peter, he was prepared for battle. He was prepared to physically defend Jesus. What he wasn't prepared for was the question of a slave girl. She asked the question, you're not one of the disciples too, are you? Indicating that she's expecting a negative response, and he gives it. I am not. There's also a brilliance to how John uh, records this. He goes back and forth between what's happening with Peter and what's happening with Jesus. Both are being tried. And we'll come back to that idea more as we move on. But remember, just a bit ago, in verse 5 of chapter 18, Jesus spoke three words and the Roman soldiers fell to the ground. What were those three words? I am he. What does Peter say? I am not. There's a contrast being set up here. Jesus, he denies nothing. He's completely honest. He remains true. Peter, he's asked a simple question. John's just gone in. He's a disciple. They would know that. But Peter, he's unprepared. He's caught off guard by this simple question. He also might have in the back of his mind that he's the one that cut off the ear. 
So he gives the easy answer. He denies Jesus. As Peter is warming himself by the fire on this cold and dark night, the story shifts back to Jesus. So, verses 19 through 23. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I speak the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. This is a sham trial. Annas is searching for a way to make Jesus incriminate himself. He asks Jesus about his disciples and Jesus, and, but, but Jesus doesn't try to defend himself. He's not guilty. He knows it. He's just, he just he's always spoken the truth out loud. He's, he doesn't have a secret agenda outside of what he's publicly spoken. So he challenges what Annas is doing. He, he knows that the proper way to have a trial is not to question the defendant, but to question witnesses. And so he asks about that, and the official standing nearby, he doesn't like the way the authority of Annas, who he considers the high priest still, how he's being treated. And so he slaps Jesus in the face, and he says, is this the way to answer the high priest? And again, Jesus just challenges what they're doing. Is this appropriate, the way these things are proceeding? If I said something wrong, testify to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Jesus spoke the truth. He didn't back down. He didn't call people names. He didn't get out of control. He always remained in control. So Annas, the one who was trying to humiliate Jesus, was not only unsuccessful, but he was put in his place and he had to send Jesus over to Caiaphas, the official high priest. So then John switches back to Peter again. Verse 25, meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. Peter was caught off guard the first time he was asked the question. Now he had a chance to correct it. He had heard the question before. He, he could stand up for Jesus now, yet he doesn't come to his senses. It's easier to continue down that line once you've started. He didn't correct his mistake, and he continued to fail in following and defending Jesus. And so he denied him again, even though before he was so confident that he would stand up for Jesus. And then verse 26, one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. This time Peter may have wondered, oh, I'm gonna be recognized by the guy who saw me cut off the ear. And he just continues down the line with the lie and denied Jesus. And then the rooster crows, just as Jesus had predicted. And one commentator writes this, he says, the effect is to emphasize the fulfillment of Jesus' words to Peter. 
and to make it clear that Peter cannot follow Jesus until Jesus has died for him. Peter could not follow Jesus until Jesus has died for him. Romans 5.8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As Jesus was being tried, Peter was lying about him. As Jesus was moving toward his death, Jesus was, or Peter was denying him. Jesus denied nothing. Peter denied Jesus. Jesus was courageous and, and on purpose, Peter was cowardly. One commentator explains this passage this way. The point <clears throat> is virtually the same. Peter failed at this stage of his discipleship. He was merely a fallible human. Clearly, sometimes he was a miserable failure as a follower of, Christ, of Jesus. But that fact helps us as human failures to realize that we do not have a perfect, we don't have to be perfect to become followers of Jesus or to be accepted by God. We don't have to be perfect to become followers of Jesus or to be accepted by God. Next week, we'll look at how Jesus lovingly approaches and forgives Jesus, or Peter, after his resurrection. But for today, we can take comfort in this truth from this passage. We don't have to be perfect to become followers of Jesus or be accepted by God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While Peter was denying Jesus, he was on his way to forgive. Even as he was going to the cross, his closest follower was denying him. And just like Peter, every one of us has sinned. We have failed God at some point. But that's what Jesus came to do. He came to die the shameful death that every human deserves so that we could be forgiven. This story highlights the beauty of God's plan. It highlights the power and control of Jesus over it all. I think one of the greatest displays of power is restraint. Jesus, he had all the power of the universe available to him. He made that clear with three words and that power that went out and made them fall before him. He could have used that at any point. Yet he restrained that power for our sake. Even his, as his closest follower denied him and denied him and denied him. No matter what you've done, no matter how many different things or how many times you've done the same thing, no matter what, no matter how much guilt or shame or baggage that you carry, no matter what's been done to you, no matter where it's been done, Jesus wants to forgive you. He came so that you and I and everyone could have the opportunity to be set free from our sin and our guilt and our shame that weigh us down and keep us enslaved to a certain way of life. He knows that like Peter, nobody could follow Jesus until he died for us. 
The invitation this morning is to accept this gift if you've never done that. Ask him to forgive you of your sin and your guilt and your shame. And he will forgive you. And he'll give you the Holy Spirit to work inside you, to cleanse you, and to transform you into the best version of yourself, the person without sin. If you have already done that, the invitation is to ponder this story and all that Jesus is. Maybe for you, it's to consider that what happens with the temptation. We need to be prepared. Jesus told the disciples, pray so that you won't fall into temptation and they fell asleep. Maybe the challenge is to be praying spending more time with our Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what the Holy Spirit may be saying to you, but the invitation is always to ask the Holy Spirit, what do you want my response to be because of this passage? And then obey. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Thank you that even as humans walked him to the cross, beat him, spit on him, denied him, betrayed him, as we did all that to Jesus, you willingly went for our sake. While we were still sinners, you died for us. God, whether we've heard that before a hundred times before, is such an amazing, wonderful truth. And we are so grateful and we thank you and we pray that you would help us to really just grasp it more and more, the love that Jesus has for us, that was demonstrated in what he did for us. Please just give us, help us to be open to your prompting and know what our response is to be and give us the courage to to obey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.